David Cantor is with us, and David has been involved in the seeding of the Urantia Revelation uh, through his works with the Foundation, the Fellowship, uh, Urantia International, Association International. Continues, he, he has, in 2014, he wrote, produced, and directed a beautiful movie, which is called Reimagining Jesus, which David was kind enough to share with me. It is on Amazon, and David says it does very well. So we're going to talk about that, making that movie. David has also uh, made a couple of uh, videos that are very instructional, and I was very taken by his very natural style of being able to take very complex, or sometimes complex, Urantia content and, and provide sort of a pathway where you can grasp it on a much more basic level, which is inspirational. And David is, has been kind enough to join us on the Urantia Radio podcast a little bit of background on David. Uh, his father was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute. Uh, his mother, a graduate of Biola. They were traveling evangelists. So uh, David's early life experience, been traveling in a lot of different places, probably speaks a, a number of different languages, which I'll ask. And he has been deeply involved in creating a web presence for the fellowship uh, for the past, uh, past few years. And uh, we're going to talk about... Uh, his journey, and also some things that we want to talk about with regard to the importance of the fourth or the fourth part of the Urantia book, which is the life and teachings of Jesus. So first of all, David, let me thank you and also welcome you to my family here on the Urantia well, Radio Podcast. Thank you very much, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to our time together. Well, lately I've had some conversations with uh, various folks around the country, and there seems to be a sort of a unison in the uh, in the perspective that we're going through challenging times. And you and I were speaking because of the ideological differences that we talk a lot about. But you and I yesterday were talking about your belief in the significant importance of the fifth epical revelation and how it relates to to Jesus. And I'm talking specifically about the life and teachings of Jesus, which is the fourth part of the Urantia book, 700-page-plus exhaustive narrative of his entire life. David is also a biblical scholar to the nth degree. I mean, I am so impressed by your, your scope of knowledge. So you know the Bible, and you know the Urantia book, and it, I don't know, you must have met Meredith Sprunger at some point. I'm sure that you—did you ever meet Meredith Sprunger, the pastor from Indiana? Who was also well, Meredith and I were, were deep friends for many years, yes. Wonderful man. Well, you both share in the fact that not only are you biblically uh, knowledgeable, but you're also Urantia book knowledgeable. I, I, I sometimes feel like because I don't have that rich depth of knowledge of the Bible, I don't appreciate fully what the Urantia book is. Does, does having both viewpoints really solidify the truths of the Bible for you, and and in what way? What do you appreciate now about the Bible that maybe you didn't appreciate when you were younger after you were exposed to the Urantia book teachings? Well, I, you know, the, the Bible is, 
and they were entry with both for such uh, comprehensive, complex work, so deep one can be with them for a lifetime and, and still feel like you're scratching the surface. To, to answer your question, uh, for me, the Bible contains such gems, even with Paul, as, as much as I disagree with, with Paul on some of his his doctrine, he, he, he penned some of the most beautiful, inspiring spiritual gems in the New Testament. And I, I appreciate that. You've got the Psalms. Um, I, I have found in the Bible those things which enhance my personal experience, personal spiritual experience, are just deep and rich. They're wonderful. They'll, they'll be there forever. And did you ever decide, or, or why did you not decide to get into preaching or becoming a minister? Was there something that prevented you from going that route? Because it sounds like you seem like a holy man to me. I grew up in a fundamentalist environment, and just it didn't make sense to me. Um, I always had a sense of the presence of Jesus, but it didn't make sense. I totally rejected it. And when I was in college, I started getting into uh, Eastern religions. I loved Buddhism, but I I, uh, I prayed one night. I said, if, if you are really there, I want to know about it, and I want to know how to serve you. I just prayed. And within a month, I had a copy of the Arantia book, and it, it just took off from there. And so I, I worked my adult life within that movement. We don't have ministers. Um, and I always felt oriented to working within the Arantia movement, not to being a minister. If I had it to do over again, I might convert to Catholicism and become a Jesuit, but uh, Interesting. that path isn't open anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think your most valuable experiences were growing up and watching your parents and your grandparents and your uncle and your aunt uh, their experiences in Brazil, I, I'm sure that you must have some interesting takes from all of that. Was it overwhelmingly positive? Was it negative? Was it frightening? What, what, how, how do you think that impacted your viewpoint of the world? Well, I think I was influenced by their dedication. I, I didn't agree with a lot of their theology, but I... I was impressed by their dedication. These were folks who had given their lives to working for the kingdom, trying to bring about the kingdom of God on earth and to serving people in the environments that they found themselves in. I, I was impressed with that. Yeah, that would be something that would, would go to character development, seeing how your parents, uh, even if you don't believe in what they're what they're saying or what they're doing, and I'd be curious to know, what is it that you took issue with? What what were some of the issues that, as a young lad, you took issue with, with the way that they were presenting Christianity? Um, I think the atonement doctrine never made sense to me. Just never made sense at all. Uh, why would there be a God who liked blood sacrifices? And, and why would he sacrifice an innocent person to pay for the sins of, of guilty people. I mean, it just none of that ever made sense to me. Plus, they were extremely strict and, and rigid in 
in their prescriptions for how how children and young adults should behave. I was really glad to head off to college and get out of that <laughs> environment. But yet, it's interesting, isn't it, though? Because today, uh, one of the tenets, perhaps even one of the key tenets of Christianity, is that very thing, the atonement doctrine. And not that many people I have ever met that are full, devoted Christians have ever said to me anything about having, I mean, they accept it at face value that they're sinners, they need to repent, and that's the way that you, you get you get grace. I mean, that it's almost, uh-huh. you know, it's almost like if you, it's the same, it's, it's repetitive. It's almost as if it's, it, it's an indoctrinated uh, theme, again, based on this idea that there had to be a sacrifice in order to receive redemption. But isn't that really a characteristic of the human nature anyway? We're always negotiating with the gods? I think so. I, I would agree with that. And I also think that, that repentance and seeking a connection with spirit works. It works for millions of people. In spite of the story they tell themselves about the atonement and, and you know needing to pay for sin, that this whole set of stories, that's kind of separate, in my mind, from the real part of being a human being and seeking connection with one's creator, with God. Yeah, and I, I, I think you're right. We're not sitting here saying that you shouldn't be humble before the creator and admit your, your failings because they're completely revealed. God knows you know everything about you. That's that's what we were taught, and that's what we believe. God is a personality. Yes. So let uh-huh. let's move ahead to your early work with the fellowship. What was it like during those early days? Because you go back to 1969. Uh, you knew, you knew Vern, Vern Grimsley, who was a very charismatic leader in the early days. Some of the foundation were actually concerned about that to a certain degree. What was it like being at the forefront of that first initial? generation of Urantia book readers? Well, it was pretty stimulating. Um, you know, as a young a young man, just uh, kind of got intoxicated. It's, it, it takes time, it takes life experience to figure out our relationship with God and what the implications are for our interpersonal life, for our service in the world. I just found that it took a lot of time to work that out. You know, when you pray, uh, do you get an answer? If you if you feel like you're getting an answer, getting guidance, what does that mean? How do you sort that out from your own psychological predispositions and needs? And that, to me, is a, a huge part of spiritual growth in the early years. So, that was all taking place at the same time that I was getting oriented to, to this revelation, and I, I, uh, I didn't have a lot of self-confidence, so I was easily swayed by others, and it took me a while to learn not to let anyone else define reality for me. I needed to figure it out for myself. All, all a part of that early young adult spiritual orientation and growth. So you always felt that there was a connection to be made, and the Urantia book sort of became the the door. What was it about the Urantia book that uh, that appealed to you? 
Well, I did always feel that there was a connection, even as a, a young man, as an adolescent growing up at home. I, I felt there was a connection with God. And I started searching, and the thing that I was searching for was an approach to spirituality which would also let me integrate the findings of science, evolution, astronomy, psychology. I felt there had to be a worldview in which all of those things fit together into a coherent whole. And when I found the Orange Book, ta-da, there it was, this, this wonderful, all-inclusive, coherent worldview. It's just miraculous, wonderful. So that was the appeal that it had to you. It sort of was the unifying uh, platform or foundation and, and then everything else sort of falls into place. Uh, how did it change your perception of Christianity? Um, that took me a while, but, you know, I tell you, reading part four of the Arantia book is, is a, uh, I mean, that's just the most compelling spiritual story I have ever found. And, it made Jesus very, very real to me. I just began to understand Jesus as a friend and a companion. And you read this biography, and you see what it's like when God incarnates as a human being and is engaged in this, the problems and activities of daily life. It's absolutely phenomenal. That biography is going to transform Christianity and transform the world. You know, for uh, many people that we all have our special parts of that book that are transformative, for me it was uh, the second discourse of religion, which is paper 155, and I think it's section 6 or 7, and that's where he talks about where not all people are called uh, to, to, you know, serving uh, in a religious way, but we all, he who has God the Father in him, all things are spiritual. And and I felt so liberated when I read that. I felt like that's it. I, I am free to choose to follow the truth wherever the truth shall lead me. And he says that. The truth will lead you. If you trust in the spirit that I've given you, you will find the truth will lead you to God. And I just felt so emancipated. I know Meredith Sprunger mentioned a number of times that he was hesitant when he first, uh, Judge Hammerschmidt gave him the book and said, read this and get back to me. And and uh, and he, he he laughs and he says, you know, I, I didn't want to read it. I tried. It didn't make sense to me. It was a bunch of gobbledygook. And then he says, and then I read the paper on the apostles. And uh, I think his direct quote is, anybody no psychiatrist in the world could know that much about an individual. And that's uh -huh. when he said he threw in the intellectual towel and, and realized that it was the truth, that it was the actual narrative of his life. Did you have a, a moment like that? Was there one particular passage? Well, I, let me just back up a second here. When I first got the book, I... I looked through the table of contents, and I saw that it was what I was looking for. And as I began to read it, it was clear to me that this was the 
product of a superhuman intelligence. It, there's no way humans could have written this text. And given the uh, extreme fundamentalist environment with, from which I came, I had some fear. I thought, wow, this, uh, this is definitely a Michael Jesus document. And am I being tricked? Is, this, is there a satanic plot behind this? I, I need to be really careful what I'm getting into here. But it didn't take long to get over that. It was papers 99 through 103 that really convinced me about personal spiritual experience. Those papers are, are profound, 100 through 103. Yeah. Those are phenomenal pieces of spiritual literature. Yeah, it's a good place to start because it really uh, narrows in on that relationship with with the Creator and how important that is. So let's talk about that. You you introduced a word to me called personalism, and in one of your your short videos, which are available, I should put them up on my website. Uh, uh, but you, you talk a, a lot about that. Can you share with us your ideas about how personal relationships are integral? to spiritual growth? Well, it's a big, another one of those big topics, Jim. Uh, I kind of discovered uh, personalism just a couple of years ago uh, in work I'm doing on the film I'm I'm producing. Um, Personalism, personal relationships, in my sense, and I'm still just forming my ideas. I'm getting to know personalism, reading some of the, the key writers. In fact, it's been a, a group of Catholic theologians, uh, Carol Weitzler and uh, Ratzinger, some of these Catholic theologians who've really done a lot of work on personalism. Basically, it says that the locus of spirituality in life is in relationships between persons. And that, to me, uh, is a very profound thing. And I think the teachings of Jesus really illuminate that. They're all about being a person in a context of other persons. When we look at Jesus, here's this, our Creator, coming and talking to us, teaching us. He's not teaching an ideology. It's our Creator telling us how the system works. How how do you live successfully as a person in a world full of other persons? And it's the heart of His teachings. Look at the, uh, the Beatitudes. That's kind of His philosophy of living. The fruits of the Spirit. They can only be experienced in the context of interpersonal relationships. So, you know, I'm looking that, at that as the locus of spirituality, and our Trinitarian beliefs are at the heart of that, because the heart of the universe is this Trinitarian structure of interpersonal relationships between divine beings. Well, it certainly plays into the teacher-student realm because it seems like the whole universe is constructed about uh, about this entire thing, which is true. It's the teacher teaching the student, uh, and then the student becomes the teacher, and he teaches. But it's more than that. It's it's more much more sublime uh, on your point about Trinity because really the Trinity 
was God's reaction to existential perfection. It was not enough to be existentially perfect. It had to be experientially real. And in order to facilitate that, you have to have another person in the room. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. There are, um, there are some philosophers who maintain that personality does not exist in isolation. It only exists in a context of, of other person. And that's an interesting line of thought. You and I were talking previously about the nature of the world today uh, and the, the scientism uh, mechanism, this philosophy that we are nothing more than elemental parts to a, a greater machine that has no real purpose other than to exist. And this has left what they say in 1995, it is a upset man. It has created unsettledness because he's being told that he serves no greater purpose other than the here and now. How has that, in your opinion, created problems in the modern age? This, this, this sort of scientific, if you can't prove it, it's not real approach to life. Boy, that's just, that's so deadly. I, I think that being a human being, you know, we talk about living fully, living authentically. And I think that we inherently have a drive to connect with transcendent levels of reality, to connect with our Creator, who, in fact, is trying to connect with us. And if we negate that huge part of our being, what can we expect other than neuroses, both personally and socially? You know, we're, we're moving along in a car with a flat tire. We're not going to get anywhere. Well, you must, I mean, you see it uh, in the sort of a breakdown. I think you see a lot of societal breakdown, the rise of crime, criminality, the breakdown of the family, the introduction of neo-modern. I think you even said that the Urantia book is sort of a an antidote to the neo-modern fatalism, nihilism. Is it not? I mean, it does sort of present a new paradigm which challenges mechanism. Definitely, definitely. How do you think the uh, Urantia book, moving forward, you, do you think that the, the fourth part of the book is really the clincher? That's going to be the part of the book that has it, has the greatest appeal to the masses and convincing them and reintroducing them to the life and teachings of Jesus? And what kind of effect do you think that will have? Well, I think that it will certainly reinforce the the reality of Jesus indwelling the individual, the, the part four seems to be most attractive. The Archer book, as you know, has some very complex uh, sections to it. There's something in there for everybody, from the most learned scholar to people on the streets wanting to know more about Jesus. It really covers the bases. And I don't see part four as being isolated. It's a wonderful biography, a, a wonderful narrative about Jesus, very spiritually compelling. But if you look at the other parts of the book, part one, which is about God, tells us all about the nature of this God that Jesus said was his Father. That's, that's huge. The first five papers about God are absolutely wonderful. And it tells us about 
this universe, a little bit about his universe and the civilization that's there, the spiritual civilization that permeates his universe that he introduced to us as the kingdom of heaven. The part three, the history that's there, is absolutely fascinating. It completely revitalizes the archetypes of the Christian story. It goes back to the Lucifer Rebellion and tells us all about what happened there. Adam and Eve tells us that story, Uh, the story of Melchizedek and Abraham, and a lot of other stories. That's all background that gives us a sense of the planetary situation into which Jesus incarnated to uplift. So the, the book as a whole really, really supports an, a, a huge expansion of the fourth epical revelation of the Incarnation. And to that end, your movie, Reimagining Jesus, which you produced in 2014, you say it it still gets a... a, a in fact, I have a little clip here. If you don't mind, I'm going to play it. Uh, hopefully it'll... Okay. And then you can comment. This is the opening of Reimagining Jesus, a film that was written, produced, and directed by my guest, David Cantor. Here's a little bit from the, the beginning of the movie. The view we have today of the physical and cultural environment from which Judeo-Christian religion emerged is expanding rapidly. New imaging technologies, massive databases and online services now link the work of countless researchers in real time, enabling collaboration and coordination on an unprecedented scale. From the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948 to the present day, field archaeology in Israel continues to expose new strata of our story. Not just confined to land, exploration continues in the Sea of Galilee and in the Mediterranean. Two thousand years ago, Jesus invited people to begin the exploration of a spiritual domain, which he called the Kingdom of Heaven. He taught that if we gave priority to discovering this one reality, all the essentials for a progressive civilization would fall into place. It's an excerpt from Reimagining Jesus, uh, produced and directed, written by David Cantor. How, how long did it take you to write the movie? It was about five years of work and multiple trips back over to the Middle East to shoot video and talk to people. Totally funded by you? Um, by readers. Really? By readers funded. Uh, yeah, I have a uh, non-profit uh, here, Urantia Book Films, which does this film work, and it gets funded by readers. A couple of years ago, I was I, that caught my eye that you were involved with that Urantia Films. How many films has Urantia Films produced? And then I want to talk a little bit more about this movie. Well, it's produced one, Reimagining Jesus. <laughs> okay. um, it, it's produced a lot of little shorts for social media. There's been a lot of those, and those have done well. Yeah, it they takes have. a long time to produce a film. Oh, <laughs> I imagine so. I can't, Not for the scene of art. Well, first of all, I saw the movie, and it's a great movie. Uh, it, it It's one of those movies where you're thinking about it for a couple of days afterwards. The thing that was so, I think it was an eye-opener for me, and I shared this with you previously, that 
I didn't realize that Jesus had created such a network uh, during that last year, two, the last two years of his life. I was focused more on what he and the apostles were doing, and and maybe even the the women's uh, evangelical core. But I I didn't really grasp the scope of how effective Jesus was as an administrator because he truly was. Uh-huh. It takes a lot of work to organize thousands of people to go out and turn the world upside down, and yet that's exactly what he did. And then you think about it, it's like, well, this is the Creator's Son. This is what he does. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and it was very profound for me. So, But did you? Uh, what kind of response have you gotten from the book or from the movie? A lot of responses. Um, I get good positive responses. I always have. I've only... I've seen it on Amazon. There are a couple of critiques from fundamentalists who say it's not scriptural. I think one person <laughs> said it was it looked too much like a PowerPoint presentation. But other than that, well, it I've doesn't. It's lots it's, of positive responses. Yeah, it, it's there's no PowerPoint in it, folks. It's it's a, a great <laughs> cinematic photography. It's well scripted. The score is absolutely phenomenal. What it's nice is that there's some parts where you have music. And then there's other parts where you don't need any music. The story is so compelling that you're sort of pulled in. And um, I imagine, did you have to fly around in a helicopter and get some of those shots of, uh, I mean, they're just spectacular, aerial, aerial footage of Jerusalem, uh, Jordan, Israel, uh, the surrounding areas. Just absolutely beautiful, stunning cin- cinematography. And again, the narration. Uh, uh, the, how did you get the, the the person? Anybody? Can you give us any tips on some of the people that were involved, the narrator, for example, is he a Urantia book reader, or did you hire him? Uh, yes, no, we had two Urantia book readers. Uh, uh, Stephen Zent is uh-huh. the male voice. He has a, a very professional voice. And uh, Mo Siegel's wife, Jennifer, did the, the female voicing. She I thought a there was a connection. Yeah. In drama and film. And, yeah. Uh, has a well-trained voice. Uh, it, was, it was great working with those folks. How, how how long did it take to edit it? Did it take a long time after you, know, you got all the footage? It it took some it took some time. Uh, yeah. I would say it took me about a year and a half, but it was very very complicated. Um, I had a I was editing, and I had a fire. I caught our, our the place totally burned. I got out with my hard drives that had all the footage I'd shot in Israel. Oh, my. And uh, my insurance company put me up in a nice hotel. So I was in the hotel editing uh, this film. It was great being in the hotel, but at the same time, I was doing radiation every day for cancer. Oh, my God. And <laughs> editing this film. It was a wild time, but but it got done, and uh, I, I was very happy yeah. with the outcome. I wanted to go back and just comment on something you said earlier about the helicopter. Yes, um, we had a helicopter. I had Eric Kosh, a videographer from Arizona, who, who was with me. We had we worked the the videography together, and. So I hired this helicopter. It was fantastic. The the guy who flew it, it was this little small Roberts helicopter with no doors. You're just hanging in it. He uh, trained Israeli fighter pilots, trained Apache helicopter pilots 
And he, he flew that helicopter like a motorcycle in the sky. It was just fantastic. But it cost $1,200 an hour. Ooh. And I think we probably had the helicopter overall for between six and seven hours. Today, I can buy a really good drone for $1,200. <laughs> um, yeah, but know, it would probably get shot years. down. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the 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 you got the and Getty. Some of that must have been stock footage from museums, I imagine. But still, it's it was woven together spectacularly. I would imagine, just as an offside. I mean, in my heart, I believe that there is a real renaissance in movie making right now, where people are moving away from Hollywood. They're moving to places like New Orleans, Nashville, other Georgia, and they're getting away from the stink of of Hollywoodism. Uh, and uh, Christian movies are making a great rebound, uh, and movies uh-huh. that are not woke and you know ideologically unfriendly to the United States, uh, they're you know stories of you know think about Abraham Lincoln, Steven Spielberg. I think people hunger for more knowledge about the past because it's so hard to find. You could make so many different movies out of the Arantia book. You could take Andon and Fanta and make a movie. You could take. John the Baptist and make a movie just about him. In fact, I've got a draft script of uh, of his last days on earth, which I think would be a gripping tale of a man's faith. You've got the Adam and Eve story. You've got the Van and Amidon story. You've got the Rata and Adam's son story. You've got all these wonderful human tragedies and, 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 and achievements. Uh, you could take any one of the apostles' life and turn it into a movie. These are all things I think that would you could take John Mark for God's sakes he's the I, I think John Mark is the luckiest man to ever live. He got to hang out with the Creator's son. I mean, it was just yeah. you know. Yeah. So there's all these wonderfully inspiring movies that could be taken from the Urantia book. Hell, I think Star Wars was taken from Paper sixty seven. You know, if you want to know the truth, it seems like yeah. the, the force that George Lucas is talking about is the same unqualified absolute that we hear about in the Arantia book. So, well, you... I think you're right. There's good street, uh, there's there's good thought that Gene Roddenberry was a reader of the Arantia book. Is there any truth the to whole... that? It's hard to know. It's, it sure is suspicious. Well, I remember there's one episode of, uh, of Star Trek where Uhura is, is, is hearing chatter on the universal broadcast systems, which is another reference to the Urantia book. Uh, and she hears the natives of a particular planet worshiping the sun. And Jap- Captain Kirk says, oh, you mean the solar orb? And she says, no, the son of God. And I thought, boy, that's pretty oh, advanced yeah. for a science fiction movie in 1967. But, um, yeah. you know, but again, yeah. it sort of lends itself. What it really does, David, is it, it sort of confirms that people are really hungry. Which leads to my, my next question, which is, how do we save Christianity from itself? You mentioned in our conversation that we had that Christianity has lost a lot of its appeal since the Enlightenment. So can we go into that direction for a minute? Tell us about sure. the Enlightenment and, and where you see us now and how it, affect, how it affected Christianity and what needs to be done to save Christianity. Well, it's, it's another one of those huge questions, Jim. Anything I share with you is my own personal opinion, too. I have to say, of course. I mean, I'm, 
I'm a student. I'm struggling to understand these things and, and find my way through this forest of what's going on in the world today. The um, the Enlightenment was really difficult for Christianity. If you start out in the, in the, in the early 16th century, are you familiar with Dante's Divine Comedy? Uh, uh, I am a, Dante's Hell, I am. Yeah, I mean, it's I don't know as much as you, so please. Well, Dante's Divine Comedy is just a great depiction of Christian cosmology in the, the company of... Uh, uh, Oh, the, the Roman poet wrote Aenid Virgil. They they go on this journey from the bottom of hell. They travel all through hell, the different levels of hell. They go to purgatory. Uh, Dante's explaining to Don, uh, Virgil's explaining to Dante all of what's going on here, and they they go up into the upper realms, into paradise, all the way into where the throne of God is, and that there are millions of angels singing God's praises. So Dante outlines this whole cosmology, and it's basically a poetic treatment of Thomas Aquinas's work earlier. Okay, we're looking at 16th century. That is still the cosmology that Christianity has today. It hasn't changed, and look at what's happened in our exploration of the cosmos. So I, the way I look at it, Christianity is suffering from a collapse of its supportive narrative. It's just not there anymore. The Bible has been, there's been a lot of critique on the Bible. There was the Jesus seminar, a lot of undermining of the stories supporting Christianity. Now, you can declare a belief. Look at the, the creeds. Take the Nicene Creed. That's just a flat declaration. Here's what I believe, regardless of anything else, regardless of any evidence to the contrary. That's kind of the position Christianity is in today, particularly evangelicalism with their, their five fundamentals. And that, to me, is really weak. Uh, um, it seems that you're spiritual perspective should match up with observable reality if you're going to be effective in the world. If it's not, you're kind of isolated in a subculture. Is that making sense? Well, it does. So what are the five fundamentals of evangelicalism? Um, virgin birth, atonement doctrine, uh, reality of the miracles, literal hell, and maybe the second coming. Uh, so what you're saying is those those belief systems are rooted in 16th century doctrine, and they haven't they haven't evolved. And and so what's the danger of that? What is the danger of holding on to those doctrinal precepts? Well, you know that depends on what we see as important in life. What's most important is is people's personal experience with God the most important thing? And, and if that's the case, you know, the story doesn't really make that much difference. It's a supportive story. Christian communities are wonderful. Catholic communities are wonderful. People 
come together, go to church. They, they meet after church with their neighbors. Their kids go to the Catholic school together. It's a wonderful thing. Community is a wonderful thing. People have their, their relationship with God. But when it comes to missional problems, when it comes to working out this go ye into all the world, declaring the gospel, then we need to have some kind of a rational sense of what the world is that we're supposed to go out into and do this work. And that's where I see it breaking down, you know. <laughs> well, again, it kind of goes con- back to the point I was making about the the Arantia book's narratives on individuals. Uh, the, and I know that we do this with the Bible, too, because there are a lot of biblical stories, the story of Job, the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac. I mean, there's all these principal players, and we, we're very familiar with the stories, that even the story of the turning water into wine and all that the death of Lazarus, which you mentioned in, in your Reimagining Jesus, it's almost as if people need miracles in order to find God. And the Arantia book is saying the miracle is God. Or any great religion, the miracle is God. Not It's not the miracle that, that you have to accept. It's the, it's the acceptance, acceptance of the fact that there is a spiritual creator. And sometimes I think uh-huh. that gets lost in the Christian message. Because it becomes a litmus test. You have to believe in these precepts in order for you to consider yourself saved. And then I think that's the wrong message. I think people instinctively feel like, oh, this is a club then. This is like a a special club. And and clubs, you know, that's not very spiritually refreshing. It might be great for fellowship, but it doesn't, doesn't, in my opinion, it doesn't increase your spiritual uh, character. Uh, it, it doesn't teach you the the truths, the truths, the real truths of spiritual growth. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. I, I think there's a real a dichotomy, if that's the correct word, in, in Christianity about how we approach our spiritual life. And it's really well illustrated in the, uh, the conversation between St. Francis and St. Dominic. Francis said, oh, you know... First comes our experience of God. We, we have a spiritual experience. We become aware of the presence of God, and then we go out and try to figure out what this means. And we go out and we study, and we talk to people. We try to figure out what it means. The Dominicans, Dominic says, no, you need this rigid uh, educational regime to teach you everything you need to know about God, and then you'll find him. And those are two very different approaches. I would say the Arantia book takes more of a Franciscan approach, but this is a book for people who've had that experience of God and want to know what it means and what the implications are for their lives. It's not something that you would study so that you would then find God, at least in my opinion. I think that's a pretty good assessment. Um, who do you think the Arantia book will influence more, Christians or non-Christians? In the, in the ages to come? It's so hard to say. The, the, you know, Western civilization is going through this huge transition right now. Your answer book says that Western civilization is slowly disintegrating. And that's kind of a harrowing uh, statement. The integrator of Western civilization has been Jesus and the Jesus story. So... And let's talk about that, because you, you talk about 
the fact that the spirit of truth, which is the gift, uh, is is there to inspire us, but it's latent. It's it's not being utilized. By uh, explain that a little bit. How, how is the spirit of truth? You, you you mentioned earlier about the fourth epochal revelation and how it's in, it's going to ultimately infuse the fifth epochal revelation, which is the Arantia book. How how do you see that playing out? Well, I, I, <laughs> the Urantia book really lets us know about the massive amount of spiritual support that there is out there for personal growth and for planetary transformation, but it requires individual people connecting with it and assimilating it into their lives and letting it influence the way they work in the world. This spirit of truth is the presence of Jesus, and it's there within the the consciousness of every human being if they will recognize it, if they will commit to allowing it to inform their lives and stimulate their lives. That is a huge amount of spiritual power out there that we have not even begun to tap. Yeah, there is a... I I, I agree with you. There's two times I've heard this said, uh, one from my uh, old acquaintance, Larry Mullins, and then I think uh-huh. Halbert Katzen, maybe. Uh, they both remarked that uh, some of the response when the Urantia book was first uh, appearing, the papers were first appearing in Sadler's group back in the uh, early 30s. <laughs> and some uh, some uh, unseen observer remarked, he says, why aren't you guys getting more excited about this? <laughs> Don't you realize what you have? <laughs> and I think in the same sense, on a, on a global scale, once we realize the power of what you say, the, the spiritual support that's available to us, uh, you know, it will be a long process, but the potentials, you know, eventually the Jesus's teachings will prevail. Eventually, we oh, will yeah. figure out that that was indeed the best way, uh, and everybody will benefit. But it's going to take everybody getting sick of themselves, I think, and getting you know to the point where they're just they're they've exhausted materialism to its fullest extent, and they're still not happy. What's missing in my life? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your question about Christianity and what can be done to to save it, that's a big question in my mind, too, because, you know, the Arantia book makes that comment that that Christianity is powerless to, in this huge transition that we're going through or beginning to go through, because it's so tightly integrated with the very institutions and structures that need to be transformed. Huge problem. The, the biggest problem in Christianity that I've I've seen is this entanglement between church and state. It goes all the way back to the collapse of the Roman Empire and Constantine and the transfer of political power to the Roman bishop. And it's still out there today, this confusion between church and state. And it's uh, that's a mess. But but to, to answer your question, I'm... I am, in my work, positioning the Arantia book as a text for people who are concerned about their own personal spiritual development, their own personal religious development, and I'm I'm wanting to target Christians within the institutions who are at that point where they're asking that question. Those are the folks that will need to take it into the institutions if the institutions 
can be transformed as long as they're still viable. Who knows how far down Western civilization is going to decline before it recovers? Um, I suspect that no matter what happens, the Catholic Church will always be there. But a lot of questions there, and a lot of work to be done for those of us who want to see this revelation out there in the world. Are you surprised by the growth today that seems to be exponential? It is growing. I mean, there was a long time during the aughts and the 90s where it maybe it had to do with technology, but it seemed like the Arantia book was sort of just trotting along. Uh, you had a few conferences, you know, but now it's like the young people, the old, the older folks. I mean, there's the association, there's the foundation, there's heck. I mean, they just opened up a, a fellowship chapter in Uganda. Uh, you know, it's it's absolutely remarkable. It's logarithmic, um, and and I think the demographics of the Arantia Book readership cover they replicate the demographics in the larger culture. Uh, yeah. But to answer your question, starting out, it all seemed so hopeless back in the late '60s. You know, no one's really interested. You tell people about it, and they yawn, and. You wonder where it's going. The point where I turned around in my thinking was I was out in a forest in Lithuania at a Urantia conference with 50 <laughs> people praying one morning. Wow. We're out in this forest and the sun's breaking through the trees and it suddenly struck me, I am in Lithuania. <laughs> and this is a Urantia conference and there are 50 people here who love this book. And... You know, from there, it's just grown. It's global. The, the foundation's translations have been wonderful. So it's it's spreading like wildfire out there. I'll say. Just in my generation, yeah. Well, you know, I want to thank you for all of your work and your tireless efforts in, in helping this thing move and grow. Uh, you know, it, it's just it's amazing to me. So many wonderful people like you who have dedicated their lives to helping this revelation uh, grow. And uh, and I just appreciate it. I appreciate When you said you were uh, going to come on the program, I got all excited. Uh, you've been around. A lot of your work is is published on the Association website. I mean, you can find it everywhere, K-A-N-T-O-R. Just Google that with the word Urantia, and you'll find unlimited uh, contributions that this man has made to the growth and awareness of the Urantia book. Uh, before we finish, what can we expect in your next film presentation? Do you have a timeline? This is about the thought adjusters and the spirit of truth. Uh, tell me a little bit about your next film, uh, if you if you wouldn't mind. No, happy to. It's an introduction to the Urantia book. And I'm, I'm trying to show how the Urantia book integrates with the outworking of the Incarnation. You know, it's been rolling along for 2,000 years, and I'm asking the question, why the Arantia book? Why now? What is it about the global situation that, that requires an ethical revelation? And I'm trying to contextualize it. I, I think a lot of readers view it as something that just fell out of the sky, and it's separate from everything else in the world, but it's something that needs to be integrated into the evolutionary stream. So I want to show the points uh, where that integration takes place and why it's so critical 
at this particular juncture in civilization. That sounds pretty fascinating. When do you expect to have it finished? What's your goal? I'm, I'm targeting the end of next year. If I get it finished by the end of next year and don't publish it until after January 1st, then I've got all of 2024 where it's considered a new film and I can get it in film festivals and get it out in different places. So that's uh, what I'm aiming at. Okay. All right. And are you needing any assistance? Do you want to solicit any people that might be able to assist you? Well, if anybody's interested, they can contact me. I've got a good network of people I'm working with. There's always, you know, people with technical background, people who are willing to review things when they're ready to be reviewed, uh, people who might have suggestions, always open to that. Fair enough. David Cantor joining us on the Arantia Radio Podcast. Any final thoughts? Uh, yes, I'd like to thank you for the work you're doing. You've, you've uh, made it possible for a lot of your book readers to share their individual experiences and perspectives, and I think that's a tremendous service that you're doing, and I'm really grateful for it. Keep going. Thanks. I appreciate that. You too. I mean, you know, people like you inspired me. So here we go. Anyway, uh, Team Jesus, as as Diane Lebrecht would say, Team Jesus. (laughs) So there we are. So thank you. I'm going to play a little bit more from your movie, uh, if you don't mind. And again, if you want to go see it, it's on Amazon Prime. Just uh, Google it, Reimagining Jesus. Uh, and uh, and you, it's it's wonderful experience. Share it with as many people as you can. Uh, well, perhaps talk again. Our paths will hopefully cross again, David. And thank you for joining me on the Arantia Radio Podcast. The tragic events in Jerusalem during Passover week A.D. 30 are well known. Today, some 2,000 years later, the story is still retold countless times every day in virtually every country of the world. When his arrest finally occurred, it was away from the crowds and witnessed by few mortals, but an entire universe looked on in shocked disbelief as the incarnate creator was arrested as a common criminal. As long as I am with you in the flesh, I can be but one individual in your midst or in the entire world. But when I have been delivered from this investment of mortal nature, I will be able to return as a spirit indweller of each of you and of all other believers in this gospel of the kingdom. In this way, the Son of Man will become a spiritual incarnation in the souls of all true believers. When I have returned to live in you and work through you, I can the better lead you on through this life and guide you through the many abodes in the future life in the heavens of heavens. Life in the Father's eternal creation is not an endless rest of idleness and selfish ease, but rather a ceaseless progression in grace, truth, and glory. Each of the many, many stations in my Father's house is a stopping place, a life designed to prepare you for the next one ahead. And so will the children of light go on from glory to glory until they attain the divine estate, wherein they are spiritually perfected, even as the Father is perfect in all things. If you would follow after me when I leave you, put forth your earnest efforts to live in accordance with the spirit of my teachings and with the ideal of my life, the doing of my Father's will. This do instead of trying to imitate my natural life in the flesh as I have, 
brute force being required to live it on this world. The Father sent me into this world, but only a few of you have chosen fully to receive me. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, but all men will not choose to receive this new teacher as the guide and counselor of the soul. But as many as do receive him shall be enlightened, cleansed and comforted. And this spirit of truth will become in them a well of living water springing up into eternal life. And now as I am about to leave you, I would speak words of comfort. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I make these gifts not as the world gives by measure. I give each of you all you will receive. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. I have overcome the world, and in me you shall all triumph through faith. I have warned you that the Son of Man will be killed, but I assure you I will come back before I go to the Father, even though it be only for a little while. And after I have ascended to the Father, I will surely send a new teacher to be with you and to abide in your very hearts. And when you see all this come to pass, be not dismayed, but rather believe in as much as you knew it all beforehand. I have loved you with a great affection, and I would not leave you, but it is the Father's will. My hour has come. Doubt not any of these truths, even after you are scattered abroad by persecution and are downcast by many sorrows. When you feel that you are alone in the world, I will know of your isolation, even as when you are scattered every man to his own place, leaving the Son of Man in the hands of his enemies, you will know of mine. But I am never alone. Always is the Father with me. Even at such a time I will pray for you. And all of these things have I told you, that you might have peace and have it more abundantly. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have triumphed in the world and shown you the way to eternal joy and everlasting service.